Welcome to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. Today I'm talking with Rosemary Morrow. Ro has spent much of her adult life teaching permaculture to the world's people with the greatest need. She's journeyed to support farmers and villagers and refugees in some of the most war-torn, challenged places on the earth. Rosemary practices the third ethic of permaculture, fair share, where she provides the skills and knowledge that permaculture can offer to the people in the world that need it the most, those that have been displaced from their country and are living often in tents with tens of thousands of others. She's also author of The Earth User's Guide to Permaculture, The Earth User's Guide to Teaching Permaculture, as well as A Good Home Forever and Family Seed Saving, which has been translated into multiple languages around the world. This podcast was recorded. Now we've had a few technical Rosemary glitches over Skype in this in Sydney, recording, but she's so recently returned us, from teaching and there's a bit of background noise. And a there are a few technical barista. issues. We're talking with Rosemary with some Vice from noise, Sydney. She's recently returned from Malaysia, where she's been working with refugees. So today we're talking about your project, Permaculture for Refugees, and could you just sort of explain what that project is and how it came about? Yes. So when the large numbers of refugees started pouring out of Syria and they'd already been coming from Afghanistan and I looked at their living situations I was absolutely appalled mm. they were dreadful their hell, they're absolutely what shocking what were they like, could you describe them? Oh, grey water and slime and children playing in the slime and wide streets and in Iraq temperatures are plus 50 in summer and minus 15 in winter, mm. centigrade and no shade and nothing to do and endless years you might be there, perhaps up to 12 or 20 years, um, no certainty, anything you could do, whether you could cut hair or sew a seam or plant a thing or teach French was taken from you and you weren't allowed to practice it, you're on handout rations. And so... It was closest thing I could find to a maximum security prison, really. Mm, terrible. And bad, bad news. So that's when I decided that permaculture is going to be better than this. Yeah. It had to be better. And since I've been looking at it, I can't find a downside to teaching permaculture. Not one. You know, usually I think you have to look in any project to what are the risks and negative outcomes. And I haven't been able to think of one. Mm. Yeah. If you think of one, please challenge me because I'd like to know and see what we need to do about it. My ambition was to teach so that everyone would learn, not deliver content and say, there, I've done that, because most teachers say, well, I couldn't teach it all or I wanted to tell them this, but I couldn't do it. My question is, what are students learning and is it relevant? Because mm. I thought, what a waste of time if you've got the equivalent of sage on the stage or chalk and talk, mm. and you're just losing it. You go somewhere, it's a lot of time and effort, it's often uncomfortable, people have come together, they've often given up something, and then they get badly taught or they get taught by a sage on the stage with a lot of drawings they can't understand. Mm. So I put a huge amount of work into a very learner-centred permaculture. I produced a manual for that called Teaching Permaculture Teachers. So it's a stage further than just teaching permaculture. Mm, okay. so it's just teaching the teachers and it's based on radical 
series of education, everything from Paolo Freire and going right through to today's people. And permaculture being something that you really teach in the marketplace and accept everyone who comes is particularly suited for this. And also we're activists. We're teaching people to go out and do it. Mm. So, you so, know, with all this in mind, um, I've had a big part of my life is what will help people teach. Does it help to have a computer or a pencil in, a, in to learn? Does it help to have a picture and words? Does it help and so on? So what are the things that you've found are the most important, like the different ways of teaching that you would recommend over the traditional ways of teaching? Uh, well, I think not to speak more than 30% of any lesson. Mm. And is that particularly to, because of the language barriers or in any no, teaching? No, that's in any teaching anywhere. So if I have a university class, I'll still say to them, now take out your pencil and just draw a picture of your block of land and where's the sun and where's the... Because I'm embedding the knowledge in them. Mm. And remember, people only remember 15% of what they hear. Yeah. So if you've got them engaged, they're learning. Now, that could be writing a definition because I don't do super active permaculture gardens all the time, though mm. they photograph. I want people to be able to look at a landscape, know what to do for repair and rehabilitation of that land. Mm. What will make it build soils? What will clean water? What will restore biodiversity? What will give yields? So I teach towards those goals. Mm. But it means that students have to be engaged. Um, and engaged isn't making compost. Mm. It's thinking about how to design something. It's thinking about what are the problems with that hill slope. What should I be doing with this water? So I engage them in real problem solving a lot of the time. And I'm very keen on the traditional curriculum. I think the one that Bill developed was excellent. And in the years that have passed, all I've found is we've got more evidence that Bill was right. Yeah, Okay. Mm. Mm. So you don't have to play with it. You don't have to make up your own curriculum. When people do, it's usually abysmal. Mm. Anyway, that's that's my side issue. Why would I go and have 60 people in a refugee camp if they're not going to learn anything? So what are some of the main goals you have when teaching permaculture and what are some of the positive outcomes that you've had? Yeah. Well, some people think I'm really stupid, but my goal would be to provide a model for refugee settlements and camps in which permaculture is taught and practised. So gradually they become ecological villages. So therefore, if the refugees go home to Mali or Congo or, or whether they stay, the whole environment is better off. And that, I think, is absolutely critical. And with that environment, you get the health and you get the food and you get the occupations, you get the incomes. You know, all sorts of things flow from a really good environment. So that was one thing. that is, I couldn't find one thing wrong with transformation, except that some of the military and some of the people who run, run camps like their power and actively would not like it. They like people being rather passive, passive recipients of food product rations. Mm. Well, you know, they get money for administering them. It's a bit like if we all go over to solar panels and eventually batteries, what's going to happen to the big coal stations and mm. gas mining and things. So there's a level of threat in it 
for some of the NGOs and managers of camps, but nothing for the people or the camp. No. And anyway, one day people will riot where it's too bad and too oppressive because people always do when they have nothing to lose. That's right. So could you describe what it's like in one of these camps? Okay, well, I taught in Bangladesh, which was extremely dramatic with a million people, you know, wow. over 25 camps. Mm. But the one that sticks is the first one I worked in in Kurdistan, Iraq. Yeah. So you can take a big fence and then barbed wire and razor wire and then electricity and then guard stations all the way around, little posts with Iraqi military and then those men in with um, AK-47s or the modern thing for the um, for those guns. Then the people, it's laid out in a grid called the old Roman style, which means if the people get difficult, you can go in and you can run door to door and you can seize them, search them. Um, mm. Yeah, and very, very wide streets and the streets are covered with blue metal, which is extremely sharp and there's a lot of children. Mm. So there's a frequent sound of a little child running down a small hill and then the scream as they great mm. their faces and knees grey water running in drains and on the top of each house the 500 litre tank black tank and that's pumped from underground through to every little block house or tent and then the, that go that can get nearly 100 degrees centigrade in summer so it's too hot to wash or drink and desperately unpleasant mm. so you know, you've got that. Then inside the camp there are a couple of schools, but that's chosen by the camp manager. And one of the principals I saw was totally undesirable in her attitude to children and learning. Um, mm. Families under canvas where the tarpaulin would blow off at night and they'd have four or five small children. They'd be soaked and wet. Um only a few people allowed to go outside the camp to work on selected building sites in the capital of Kurdistan, which is Urville. There was a women's centre and a health centre, but right under the eye of the manager. And the manager was not very nice. Mm. There was too much attention to young boys, about 8 to 14, that made me uncomfortable mm. and then so the women couldn't go privately to a women's centre or a health centre without the manager knowing and the manager lived in what was literally a castle mm. it was built with almost crenellated walls and stone he went home at three o'clock and more guards came and that was it um it was a real mess of a place actually mm. it was really awful in scale and everything and at the time I was there there was a little bit of weed growing on the ground and the women used to dig it up and eat the roots it's mm. some sort of thistle that's a weed in Victoria that mm. I know uh, almost no greens and then huge warehouse that handed out rations every Thursday and there's an indignity to being handled your food you know yeah. something unpleasant you have no choice take it or leave it the oil the rice the tin fish, the salt, you know, it's almost the same as station managers used to give Aboriginal people in Australia. No dignity, no respect, no control, pretty disgusting. 
that's one camp. But, you know, when you get to Bangladesh, it's all bamboo and pla- plastic bags tacked together, cheek by jowl, and really covering the whole undulating hillside with little paths everywhere. And again, the water pours down and it breaks in. And it's pretty, mm. yeah, pretty awful. Mm. And how long are these people in these camps for usually? Uh, well, now, most p- refugees... Their average length of time spent in a camp is 12 years, wow. but only one in a hundred will get to a third country. Mm. So you leave home first country, go to another country of transition mm. that may or may not give you a visa, such as Greece or uh, Malaysia or Bangladesh. Then, if possible, from there, if they cannot go back, and many know they can't, they apply for Canada, America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And one in a hundred would get settled. Wow. So it's a long and horrible wait. Yeah. And what I know now, and I saw it in prisons, because I've taught in prisons, Lithgow Maximum Security, among others, is that uncertainty is very, very damaging to the human mind. Yeah. You're waiting for a car to be sold, medical diagnosis, a decision made about your case when you'll go to court or how long you'll be in the camp, uncertainty, as we know from Manus Island, has an enormous impact on mental health. And I think it's not recognised sufficiently by psychologists. It's a thing that does seem to send people into mental illness. Mm, it's just horrific. Mm. So what was it that you were trying to achieve by teaching permaculture in the camps? And the goals they're hoping to achieve by introducing permaculture into refugee camps was to transform the camps and the lives of the people for whatever time they'd be there Mm. with the result that whether they stayed or left, that the whole area would be better. So the host community, who might be Bangalore or they might be Malaysian, are going to inherit some really well-looked-after piece of land or eco-village. And the ultimate game idea would be that 50 million refugees' lives would be transformed by learning permaculture. Because they have so little to do, you can then teach people there and they enjoy learning it. They loved it. Mm. Now, the idea would be then that refugees would teach refugees. And the problem to that at the moment is partly my age and strength and ability to put in place the next stage, which would be scaling up going back to the camps where we were and training the trainers and getting them to teach comprehensively. So that's the plan would be it would be a refugee-run organisation in the end. Mm. Mm. So it sounds like you've had some success already um, in Bangladesh. Could you tell us a bit about what came out of that course that you ran there? Well, that was an out- there were two outstanding courses, one in Greece and one in Bangladesh. And the Bangladesh courses were outstanding because we did a course with the host community who were just the indigenous Bangla people and then the refugees who were the Rohingya. And the Rohingya were way, way ahead of the locals. Mm. And they, in doing the course, they committed to teach others. So at the moment, I think we're up to 2,700 people have learnt 
introductory permaculture courses and the whole camp is going from bamboo boxes jammed together mm. to bamboo boxes covered in green jam together and they're also doing water management by turning water channels into growing spaces yeah. and I sent you a couple of photographs of that yeah. so that's almost unstoppable they need more money to go into other camps if there was sufficient money you can scale up faster but they're doing brilliant work so and how did another that... one Sorry, yeah. how did that come about? So you taught a small group and then they went on to teach the people around them. Is that what happened? Yeah, well, I've designed a project. It's a project design that engages a minimum of two-thirds of refugees so that they have the voice because fewer than that they may not speak or they let others talk. A couple from the host community of trainers or outreach officers so that when we leave... They have followed it, they've been there, they've learned it, mm. they can carry it on. And a couple of other permaculturists who are particularly interested in refugees and need the experience. So that was people from uh, Spain, Greece, Italy, Australia and so on. So I was trying to make sure we were, it was meta really, we are covering different levels, the refugees, the host community and the P for R people getting experience. But ultimately, you hope that refugees would end up running it. One of the big problems at the moment is language. Mm. On the website of Permaculture for Refugees, so many speak Arabic or Parsi or Farsi or Dari or one of those languages, and they just don't read and write English. Mm. And we don't have materials in language are critical, absolutely mm. critical to understanding and consolidating what people have learned you know what it's like you do something in a bit of a course or read it and then you go back and do it later and think I've got that now mm. yeah I just needed to look at that or read that or see it on a film and I've got it or mm. there are bits missing um, so there's a critical need for translation materials but our, a website would then have to be multilingual and everything needing to be translated into the major languages. The other thing is the Rohingya, for example, don't have phones, don't have Wi-Fi access. Mm. An occasional person will have a phone, but then the people won't home. Same with Congolese and Sudanese quite often. Um, they didn't have the technology. They'll have it in the next few years because once they're in the camps, they can see how it works and someone will teach them. Mm. But at the moment they haven't reached there, so you can't give them websites and yeah. other things. Yeah. So, so are, those, yeah. are those people that you taught, are they now teaching other people in the camps? In some cases, yes. In Bangladesh they definitely are. Mm. In Turkey we've got those Turkish women refugees, Syrian refugees, doing another six weeks of special courses. In Lesvos, which is a transition camp, which means the 9,000 people there are waiting to be either reassigned to Europe or sent home. Mm. And the ones who are sent home have often been killed, and that's a terrible thing to not believe someone and then send them home. That mm. is merciless, and they should not be executed because of a bureaucratic mistake by mm. a host government. Um but most of the Syrians, they're hoping peace will come and they can teach permaculture. 
That's what they they want to go back to their villages, mm. and they want to talk to people and do it. So they would take back some valuable knowledge. And that's always been the thing about refugees. Whether it's a Khmer going back to Cambodia or Vietnamese, they take knowledge, money, skills. Mm. But this is such an opportunity to give people things that would be absolutely valuable in a in a world that's warming. Yeah, you know, definitely. They need it desperately and uh, it's not always perceived so ideally refugees would run it but as I said you know to talk to all the Arabs or all the different ethnic groups I can't do it it's enough just getting I can't even get on to Jeff Lawton to get his to see if I can put the names up on the global permaculture network because they're you know they're PDC holders like everyone else but mm. they can't get onto the web to read the English, put their name up, and I'd like to put whole classes up mm. so that refugees are seen as being a significant number of PDC holders mm. when you look at that global um, database. Anyway, I'm off track. Main <laughs> goals, refugees teaching refugees. Mm. Yeah, courses have been taught so far. Well, the first one I taught years ago was in Hong Kong to Vietnamese. Since then, I've talked to Syrians in Iraq. I've talked to different Syrians. There are Christian Syrians and Islamic Syrians and uh, Kurdish Syrians and all types of Syrians. I've taught different groups of ethnic Syrians and language groups in Iraq and in Turkey. Yep. Then I've taught in... Um, the transition camp on Lesbos. And the biggest thing there was we had a couple of local residents and they have engaged on seriously very, very good transformative projects for Lesbos with the most active and interested of the refugees. And that's going to be brilliant. Great. And then when we get to mainland Greece, that's a settled camp. They have visas for two years. And the people there are engaged in transforming the camp. And Fotony, Georgiou, who runs the Perma School in Attica. She is organising for them to be able to earn income by looking after the gardens in a permaculture way, the holiday homes of Greeks mm. in that area. Fantastic. Then to Malaysia where we had all these others and we had Malays, Chinese, Indians, a very eclectic group and mm. that, was diff that was the university sponsor. So... You know, there are many different situations and the problem with taking people with the experience, they tend to write as if that one experience is a generalisation. Mm. And you really have to think back and think, well, can I say this about camp managers for all the camps? Mm. So well, I'm looking at people. vastly different with all the different cultures and religions and situations and mm. if so they're in the middle example, of war. Or... In Malaysia and... Also in Bangladesh, they're not really frightened that there'll be ISIS people hiding in the camp, but they are in Kurdistan because they bombed uh, Mosul, if you remember, bombed Mosul to ashes. And one of my students from that course is now teaching internally displaced people who are going back to rebuild Mosul how to do it with permaculture principles. Yeah. So, you know, there, there, almost every day I hear of an unexpected, unanticipated outcome. Mm. Mm. Amazing. That can 
yeah, quite significant. So it's going everywhere. And occasionally I hear from refugees in very bad English because I always put up my email and phone number mm. and Skype and I get something, we're here and we're doing this or please come back and give us some more knowledge, we've run out or, you know, That's all amazing. that sort of thing. Yeah. And so yeah. what what's it like for you going into these places? I mean, I imagine often it's quite dangerous, there's war potentially going on around you or like you just said, ISIS hiding in the camp. Is it... Do you feel in danger when you're in this, these situations? Well, when I was in Iraq, my co-teacher on that, assistant teacher on that was Paula Panin, and, and I would have been prepared to overnight in the camp, but Paula was not. Mm. He was being permitted. She thought if we get kidnapped, it's just going to be a huge issue. Mm. Kidnapping is the main thing, um, and you wouldn't know when those sorts of Wars are semi-civil wars as well, so you don't know who belong, who adheres to what loyalty. Mm. I think the most terrifying place, though, with two million refugees living in the city is Kabul. Mm. Kabul is very, very frightening. You could get kidnapped by the Taliban, by ISIS, by al-Qaeda, by someone mad to get out of the country mm. and people do get kidnapped but they keep it fairly quiet I'm not frightened but I know I have to change my route and time to go somewhere mm. and I have to walk around in a, looking like a black cloud mm. um, and you have to be careful that someone doesn't throw a bomb into the learning centre and they have to move every 12 months yeah. in case they become a target so the day centre, it just goes on. Mm. It, it is very frightening. And another place that's frightening is Srinagar because you've got Pakistan and India waging war over Srinagar at the moment and the lives of the, of the people in um, Kashmir are dreadful, absolutely. Mm. They're some of the worst I've seen. Well, the, the, their children are seized, you see, if they're suspicious that the kids are... Against the government, they all they want is independence. Mm. They don't want anything else. We just want to be independent of India, China, and Pakistan, and we'd be happy. But the country's destroyed, it's an absolute wreck. People are leaving. Those places, in some ways, are worse than camps, I think. Mm. However, my I won't call it trauma because I'm not sure what trauma is, but and it's not really despair. If hopelessness is a degree above despair, then it is the fact I'm seeing the environment go back so badly. Mm. I'm seeing denuded places, not because of the refugees, but because of bad farming methods. I'm seeing waters polluted. I'm seeing roads built in places where they should never go. I'm seeing farming methods that are going to kill the soil. Absolutely horrific. Mm. And um, then I'm talking every day and people want to tell you about this story to people for whom their lives are changed inevitably they'll never recover their village and their status and their role as a mm. father and a farmer and a teacher and a mother and a cook and a whoever they are that is locked out to them forever and their children are impoverished because they can't go to school in these countries either really and knowing there are going to be hundreds of millions of more refugees in the future mm. and that this requires a really proactive attack and it's probably the only solution they've got. Mm. Mm. So what is, apart from the skills, what's permaculture offering them? Is it offering them hope that, you know, this 
they're stuck in these camps there's nothing to do it sort of gives them purpose and offers them hope is that one of the main yeah because if you think about it if you're a refugee just if you try to empathize a bit you go back you're sitting in your tent you're probably going to sit there all day or walk up and down the main street and get your rations and come back at night you try to listen to a radio or get on the phone to find out what's happening in yemen and the news is shocking and the line is bad and you're terrified for your family and children. Mm. So that is going to occupy you. Then you'll go and find some other Yemeni and you'll talk to them. What's their news? Is it any better or different? And is that truthful? And what's going to happen next? Mm. And then you might cry for a bit and you'll be awake in the night and the next day is the same. Mm. Now, when we offer permaculture, the camp managers at every camp said they'd never had such retention rates. Mm. At the end of every course, because of word of mouth, we had at least one or two more courses we could have run consecutively straight through. Mm. Now, what does it offer? It offers something to think about. So refugees are generally thinking about home. And when you mm. ask them to draw a picture of where they live, they don't draw the tent. They draw what home looked like. Mm. And so they are applying this in their head to a known situation with positive outcomes. Mm. Then the fact of coming to a course and being given a topic at which they're quite expert because anyone can talk about a soil or water mm. and then we plug gaps on what they don't know. So therefore they come and they're occupied all day and then they have to go home at night and discuss it with their family and their friends who come over to hear what they've been doing and there's something else happening. Mm. And then half day off they're walking up and down the street looking at things differently and then we get them to do their own own place in the camp. Now the permaculture design course syllabus is ultimately middle class and western. You know, the farm regeneration and the water harvesting. But the principles are absolutely solid-based and good. So we can teach the principles for very small-scale and difficult sites. But that case, we're doing more of the small-scale and difficult and much, much less of, say, what would be a conventional zone three. Mm. And we're doing more on community economics. Yeah. Yeah, meeting needs within a community. Within the camp, as it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or in a big camp within their neighbourhood as they define it. Mm. And you say what would be your neighbourhood or what would be your community here and they'll tell you where it is. They know. Yeah, so you have to change things. Yeah. But the fact that people who started coming late would come on time and that mm. was unknown. Finishing the course was unknown. They'd have 30 for a computer course in one camp and they'd say at the end they'd have three or five. Yeah, right. So teaching, content, relevance of material, applicability to here or home or the next place they go. Um, I'm basically teaching conflict resolution, resolution skills at the same time, mm. all sorts of things about being able to – I don't let a group – ever go more than about 10 minutes without saying you're listening to each other, you're on task, everyone free to speak, each person will feed back so you're not allowing one voice to be heard mm. and dominance. So I'm teaching a whole lot of skills at the same time, which they recognise even though I don't explain them. Mm. So at the end of one course they said we've learned a lot about nonviolent communication. I thought, well, I haven't taught or mentioned that phrase. Yeah, right. 
one person got it. Mm. Yeah. So there's something there about self-development and learning and that morning go-round, each person able to say how they're feeling, mm. closing the day, having fun. Yeah. Some people stand back for the first couple of days and won't join in because that aids learning, relaxes the mind and people come back fresher and happier after mm. one minute quick something and it's all based on cooperation, not competition. So are they creating a design for where they are now or are they creating a design for a possible future home where they may live in the future? They have to design for where they are. So could you describe one of the designs that they've done for where they are? So if we're looking at, well, there are tiny little holiday cottages in Greece. They have to look at the cottage and how much land they'd be able to use. They have to look at the slope and the sun and the wind and the water and the grey water. Everything you do on your place, Mm. they do for that space. But if you're getting in the cheap by jowl camps Mm. or one in a ruck, they'll be living behind a three-metre wall with maybe two metres of space for the family. Mm. So that means that is their land and I ask them to step outside and take a metre outside. So that might be a vine. And then they have to design intensively within and just outside that minute space. If they've got a tent, they have to do something about privacy, find some bamboo. They have to do something about cooling the roof or opening a flap at the back to let the heat out in summer. They have to actually retrofit a tent so it's uh, warmer in winter and cooler in summer. They then have to plant both to clean the air, use the grey water and provide a product. They're their criteria. You see, it gives them a lot to think about. Mm. And it gives them a lot of practical, Mm. positive solutions to the situation that they're in. Yeah, it wouldn't be relevant if we said the house you might have in the future. No. I mean, it'd be nice, it'd be fun. And I've had someone do that and say, this is what I'd like to have one day. And I say, well, that's is great but for here and now yeah let's green, green this place where we are because it's a reality they can look at the soil they know how much gray water they're getting a day they know how much food they're needing a day they know what what they're doing about dust and heat the hypothetical means that they're probably using wrong data mm, yeah mm. so are they actually able to then implement these designs after they've oh yes the yeah, absolutely. So are they yes, able they, to grow, start growing food and have more of their own homegrown food? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do it in all sorts of ways. They do it behind, you know, two and a half metre brick walls and they do it in front of tents and they do it with bamboo and tarpaulin and they do it beside a cabin in a pine forest that was a holiday home for children. They do it just wherever they are. They do mm. it. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that must be a real draw card for other people to suddenly see these green spaces with food that they would then be wanting to know how did they do that and what have, where have they learnt that? Uh, that's come from a lot of camp managers. Mm. What did you do? What's the project? Why is this so successful when others fail? So in one camp we had one group who decided they didn't want to learn. They offered it but they didn't and they destroyed everything that everyone else did. Mm. Pulled up the plants, destroyed the compost, wrecked it. Mm. So Fotony has gone back to that group 
and she's given them two days training. She's got them compost and she's got them seedlings and she's got them. And now they're growing. So that's solved uh, camp conflict. Mm. Oh, the other and group lots that, of that pulled it apart. Camps. She went and taught them, did she? Yeah, mm. yeah, the ones who'd been destroying and breaking and thieving. She called them all up and said, come on, let's do something for you. Mm. Great. Now, they had been offered the opportunity, but being bolshy and difficult, they hadn't taken it. When they saw what it was, they wanted it. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, and bad things happen in camps all the time. Mm. Through the camp manager, prostitution, domestic violence, abuse of children, drugs, alcohol being given and encouraging um, Islamic people to take it and drink it. A lot of bad stuff. And you can stay outside this if you can garden as well. Mm. You can get on with looking after your four tomatoes and your bottle garden and your trellis garden and growing on the fence and whatever you can do. Mm. A little bit of positivity. So much negativity surrounding you. Yeah, for a little while life seems good. Yeah, it's so important, the work that you're doing. must yeah. just be making such a difference. Yeah, so, I need more people, and I need more people who are really good. Well, that's what I was going to say. So what can we in Australia do to sort of help this? Either, you know, is it people that you need or donating no, money not somehow? At, not at the moment, not till I've got a plan. I know the next plan is to scale up, mm. but how to do it, I'm not sure at the moment. Um, so we need money for translations urgently for Afghanistan. If we can translate some materials in Afghanistan, it will make a huge difference. Mm. There's almost nothing translated there. And if we could get some for the Rohingya in Bangla language or Rohini language, that would be wonderful. They can even be quite small books, mm. but just something that we can get to them. Mm. Mm. So where, if people yeah. wanted to donate some money to help support this, where where's the best place for them to do that? The Big Fix. The Big Fix. Dot org. Mm. So Blue Mountains Permaculture Institute is a project of the Big Fix dot org. The Big Fix is solutions journalism, and it's an NGO and it's a not for profit. And it's audited and it's book kept and they meet every month and discuss every cent. And so any money I get goes through them. So I'm absolutely beyond any sort of um, question about money because I don't have my own video. Mm. So it goes there. But then before it gets issued out, I have to jump through hoops explaining why and how it's important. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, well, that's great because I I know a lot of people care a lot about this situation and... Yeah. You know, we can feel quite helpless here as to what you can actually do and it's not really possible for everyone to go and physically be there, but, yeah, to donate's a great option. Well, it would be lovely to have the money. I'm not sure how much they are, but there are a few thousand each to do the work in for the Rohingya and the work for the Afghans at the moment. Mm. There, there are a few resources in Arabic, but really... When I read the English they're translated from, the English permaculture isn't good at all. Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, we must not translate poor quality materials into other languages when people don't have choices. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, negatively I'm seeing the world go backward, the number of refugees increase, the inhumane conditions, um, 
I just think if someone comes over the border, we should do like the ancient Romans did. Give them citizenship, say, settle down, pay your taxes, be one of us and get on with it. And they've done that in Zimbabwe with 200,000 people from Rwanda and it's worked perfectly. Mm. They've turned the whole thing into a city. They've got a good economy. They've started their own shops. They're sending their children to school and they're going to be brilliant Zimbabweans in the future. You know, it's just easy. It's almost too easy, isn't it? Yes, if only we were doing that in Australia. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and sharing the stories of your time in refugee camps. It's a real eye-opener to hear about what the situation actually is over there and it's so heartwarming to hear the effect that teaching permaculture to these people is having. So if anyone is in the position to donate, the link is on our website on the page for this podcast. It would be great, Robin. Look, I'd love to put a little update in the magazine from time to time. Definitely. Or a different story of a different camp and group. So Rosemary's doing a story in the next issue about one of the camps and if you would like to read that, subscribe now and it will be in issue 15. So thanks for listening to this podcast. Our website is www.pipmagazine.com.au.